This is Think Retail, a podcast where top designers, strategists, thought leaders, and business people discuss what's coming next. Hi, I'm Melinda, and you're listening to Think Retail. For many years, fast fashion was on top. Cheap, ubiquitous, ripped from the runway designs that were so fast and easy, they were literally designed to be disposable. However, the impact of this approach to clothing has come under intense criticism from enormous quantities of product ending up in landfill to chemical dye pollution and unethical labor practices. The cost of fast fashion is adding up. For consumers and many in the industry, the cost of such an unsustainable model has inspired them to seek out other approaches, now coming under the umbrella of slow fashion. Upcycling, thrift flips, resale, micromanufacturing and made to order are becoming more common as the impact of fashion on climate change changes the way we decide what we want to wear. Today, I'm speaking to Diana Coatesworth, an independent fashion designer from Toronto who has recently shifted her approach to be slower and more sustainable. We'll also be speaking with Kayla Vickers, an account coordinator at SLD who studied fashion from the business perspective about how social media platforms like Poshmark and The Real Real are influencing the slow fashion movement. We're going to start off with Diana. Hello. Welcome. Hi, Melinda. Thanks for having me. Why don't you just start us off by telling us a little bit about you and Diana Coatesworth Design? Sure. Yeah, I, uh, I I have to go back because I've had uh, a couple things, you know, careers, I guess. I've been an actor, singer, dancer all my life. And uh, 20 years ago, I taught myself how to sew. And, uh, you know, because you, you need to have something to fill in those gaps when you're not doing theater. And I started a little business that was very crafty. And uh, I was upcycling fabrics and making handbags and accessories. And that was just great. I would sew during the days and act at night. And I did that for many years. And then I kind of put all that away, sold all my equipment and had a break from that. And then cut to seven years ago, I decided to go back to school, the George Brown College for Fashion Design and Techniques so I could learn the real way of how to construct and pattern draft and and grade fab, uh, patterns. And um, I created my business soon after graduating. And so now we're getting into the fifth year of my business. So it's still fairly new. And yeah, that's it in a very tight nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so prior to the pandemic, your brand was both upscale casual and an event wear, ready to wear, but also a lot of custom design for red carpet and bridal. How did the pandemic change your brand model? Oh God, it completely changed it. Uh, basically a 180. Uh, yeah, I, I still do custom when I can, but it's actually a little different. I'm doing my custom bridal. People are still getting married. <laughs> I'm doing actually more custom in the new way that I'm working, which is upcycling fabrics. And uh, it's it's such a shift. Basically, back in March of 2020, there was such an abrupt stop to everybody's business, including mine. And yeah, I just, you know, as you know, Melinda... I saw a real need for PPE. So I started a a big group um, on Facebook called the Sewing Army and 4,000 people got together and volunteered to make uh, masks for healthcare workers, essential workers and people in need. 
And I was just, we were just making, making, making and donating. And uh, we, and you volunteered very kindly as well, a lot of hours towards that cause as well. And at the end of that, by the summer, I was so exhausted. Um, <laughs> from the pace of schooling to the pace of running a business, pretty much on my own. I had a production team I contracted out, but, and then going into that, which was really gratifying and, and good work and I was so happy to do. But by the summer, I was so exhausted. I needed time to rest and restore. And basically I gave myself the time to reevaluate of how I'm going to switch. Um, how am I going to move forward? Because obviously who's wearing anything event wear? Who's going to an event? You know? <laughs> Nobody. There are no events. (laughs) It's not the category to be in, let's just say, in 2020. So thankfully, that time to reevaluate wasn't too long. And inspiration started percolating. And by fall of last year, I started just feeling like, you know, we're still not able to hug people and see our families. And so I just wanted comfort in what I was wearing, but also some individuality. So what I started doing was taking pre-loved garments, such as cashmere sweaters and, and cotton and wool, and visibly mending them and in an artistic way. And it was kind of just suited to what I wanted to wear and the pace I was at. It was very solitary for me, very quiet work and slow. And and I just it's where I was. And what I wanted to wear and I put it out there and it was such a switch to what I had done before but still I was known for my handwork so it wasn't so far but I was just so happy with how it was received and it did quite well um, initially and I just kept going with that and I kept evolving and now I'm doing uh, well I guess going into the spring I started using uh, upcycled fabrics with my own design and you know bringing in more vintage clothes and repairing them so it's like a real morph of all these different categories but I kind of just felt like hey why not I have nothing holding me back from just doing what I want what I like to wear the mix of all that and yeah it, it just got it was received quite well so I just I love it so you alluded to this and mm-hmm. um, uh, to to um, doing custom, but in an ups through upcycling. Can you describe yeah. what that's like, or give us an example? I was always part of people's very special events before the pandemic. You know, with proms and weddings and sometimes funerals and very big events in people's lives, and you you know, you you have this great relationship and this special moment and creating something so important for the day. Um, And now it's like a different kind of thing, um, but equally special. I'm taking people's heirloom quilts, for instance, and making a coat out of it. Or I'm taking cashmere sweaters that their mother gave them every year and they have holes in them because mods got to them, but now I can cut around them and make beautiful sweaters that they can cherish and so it's like this meaningful creation and in, in, in custom with something that means something to them you know to right. each person so that's one way too and also like the all the vintage linens that I'm using and people are sometimes they donate it towards uh my um 
my stock or they want something made from that. Like it's just, it's, it, it really is so open. It, it, it's endless possibilities. People come to me with very unique ideas and I have the time to be able to do that now um, more than before. So um, yeah, it's been really gratifying. Yeah, and I think that 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 sort of idea of something that's handmade and one of a kind, it's very relevant right now. Yeah. How have your customers responded to this shifting to where they made before were getting a brand new garment Mm -hmm. fabric that had never been used? How are they Mm -hmm. responding to the shift towards upcycling and visible mending? So well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's very important to make sure that the design is there that the combination works like you know obviously i'm i'm hoping to bring a freshness to it <laughs> and and using quality fabric so like that's all very key components but it's been exceptional people have uh, really embraced it and i think they're looking for it you know and because it's always one of a kind it's just so unique and special to them and so um i find a lot of people that are either following me on instagram or they just check into my uh, website often they're they're looking for the one for them they're like I love that design but I'm just waiting for the the right thing and then you know they pounce and it's just fun it's like sort of like an excitement you know it's funny that you that you mentioned people sort of browsing and saying where's the one for me because I'm having that exact moment with one of your coats right now where I'm like (laughs) yeah I'm gonna see the one it's gonna happen any day now I'm gonna see the one and I I, it feeds right into my my next question so I did want to talk about social media because indeed designers are so reliant on shows to get their name and product out there but of course during the pandemic all of those shows were shut down. And so mm-hmm. uh, indie designers and, and, and brands have always been really good at social media. Um, how has that influenced your design choices and how you promoted your brand and interact with, with your customers? Yeah, it had to really, I had to change my, my approach so much because I only did 5% of my sales online uh, pre-pandemic. Wow. Um, yeah, because... I did so many shows and my, my things were so tailored. I would always be like fitting people in my booth and like pinning and then, you know, customizing it, like tailoring it at home for them afterwards. So people would just buy if they wished they had bought it or, you know, that sort of thing. They already tried it on. There was only a few that would just try it without or buy it without trying it. And then of course, now it's absolutely the opposite. I, I really wanted, I was really mindful of having that personal uh, approach online that I get in person and how to make it personal. So, um, you know, I always handwrite a, a note to um, each person that buys something, just something that just is showing I care. <laughs> um, also, I had to um, switch all my packaging, like to sustainable um, compostable packaging and like more branding inside and out of my packaging. Like I just things I never thought of before. I didn't need to think about it. Online has been so crucial to building my business. Um, also, I'm just thinking now um, earlier in the year, when I'm usually like, I guess it was January of this past year, I'm usually starting to uh, work on the one of a kind show and all the shows that come up after that. And this year, I didn't have that deadline. And so I was kind of feeling a little lost. I was creating, but 
weeks were flying by. Like, I think everybody is like, he's just like, it's another Monday. It's another just flying, flying. So um, I decided for myself, um, there's a few benefits here for myself. I'm going to do a Saturday morning drop online um, every Saturday, which was kind of, it was a lot. It's a lot, but I just gave myself the, um, you know, permission to, do it as small or a little bit bigger as I needed and wanted to do. Like I, you know, but I wanted to keep it consistent. So for most of this year, I did a Saturday morning, 10 a.m. drop, trying to keep it as consistent as possible. And I found it was exciting for people to tune in and also kept me on track and having a deadline. That was really fun. And people could see the whole thing and they can pounce (laughs) or they could be like, I'm going to think. And if, oh, it's still there, I have to have it or whatever. But yeah, that was really part uh, of the success of this year for me, my business. And yeah, so it's just, and then on top of it, I guess in the fall, I was just doing so much custom alongside those mini uh, collection drops that I kind of just, I've taken a a different approach even still. So I'm always able to morph because my business is you know, it's, it's, it's a small business. So I'm able to do that. And I'm doing things as I sell them and as I want to put them up and they just, it's like, boom, here's something else. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, it's been gratifying. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I think one of the big advantages of being a small business is that agility that you have. You Mm -hmm. can make a decision. There's no board of directors that needs to approve your decision. You can just do it. And it gives it. I've really loved watching what small brands have done online during the pandemic, whether Mm -hmm. it's, you know, videos, trying on clothes in store and selling through Instagram or your Saturday morning drops, those types of things have Mm -hmm. really, you know, when I've been at home, I am a person who loves fashion. I used to love going out and just sort of walking down the street and just looking even in windows and had to have that duplicated in a way that was really fun during Mm -hmm. the pandemic. I've really enjoyed that. And I think Mm -hmm. for bigger brands, it's, it's something that's really hard for them to to duplicate, but there's so many great lessons to be learned from that. And I, I'm, so I'm, I'm curious about how, you know, you've had success, people have responded, they like the upcycling, they like being able to bring in, I think it's lovely people bringing in heirlooms and having them remade. Mm-hmm. How has this, you know, looking forward as a designer, how do you think this is going to change your approach? Yeah, I, I just think that it, it checks all the boxes for me. And I, I always feel the way I kind of run my business is if it feels right to me, it's going to connect to others. And it just feels right in all the ways. I just feel like I'm in the right place um, for me and for the way I want to contribute to the fashion world, you know, I guess. Um, I definitely want to keep with this. You know, I, I used to go garage selling with my parents every single week. It's just, I love rooting around for the finds, you know, it's just like in my DNA. So I love that. And I just see it. I don't know where it's going to go, but I really know it's going to be down this path. The thing that, uh, as far as my approach to this, some of the challenges is just, you know, because everything's one of a kind, I have um, a number of designs that I have made. I have to keep an eye on sizing. I have to keep an eye on styles because they sell randomly. And all of a sudden I have no sizes in this one section. So I have to like 
really be on top of that kind of thing. That's sort of like something that I have to be very mindful about. And the other thing is I'm at the point where I do need to contract out work because I've been doing most of my own sewing this year, which isn't the usual for me. I've usually done, um, I've used small uh, house production houses that do small runs. Um, but you can't really bring that to this, what I'm doing now, you can't bring to those people. Like it's just such a different way. So I have to, I have to start in the new year creating a little team to, to help. It's a little too much to do all on, on my own, but, um, but that's not a bad problem to have. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> to, not. You know, yeah. Thanks for chatting with us. And if you want to check out Diana's online store, it's dianacoatsworthdesign.com. So as I mentioned earlier, retailers are increasingly dipping a toe into the resale market. As many as 60% are trying it in some capacity, even if just at the testing stages. So to find out what the opportunities are, I'm speaking with Kayla Vickers, account coordinator at SLD, who studied fashion at Humber and has a passion for resale as well as her own podcast called Facts, Fibs, and Fairy Tales. Kayla, welcome. Thank you, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I'm great, thank you. So, the desire to make fashion more circular makes sense as a driver of resale, but what else is driving this, do you think? Um, I think sustainability is a huge driver, and I think particularly with the Gen Z, uh, their generation coming up, they're even more, they care more about sustainability, they care about like getting rid of fast fashion, they don't like it as much. So I think that's a really big driver, and I think as well, millennials and less boomers, but millennials are starting to adopt the same trend because they're also interested in luxury goods, but don't want to pay high retail price. So I think those two components and as well, the developing technology that you can actually, there's, there's sort of two paths that people can take. Now you can either resell something yourself on so many of the different apps or, you know, some people are doing it on Instagram even these days, um, or you can do it through a major consignment store, like the real, real, um, so I think those two, it's just less frictionless. It's so much easier now to do resale in your own bedroom. Right. Yeah. One of the interesting things that I read while I was doing research for this was that some people now when they're purchasing something, they're factoring the resale value yeah. into the cost, which mm -hmm. had never occurred to me, but yeah. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's interesting because I was doing research as well. And, you know, there was good points that like resale has been, we've been doing resale for hundreds and hundreds of years. Anytime someone, you know, you buy a car, you think about the resale value. Mm -hmm. So when you buy an expensive item, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, people will just do it in like pawn shops or like mom and pop consignment stores. It's been the internet that's really like brought it together mm -hmm. and made it accessible for the masses essentially. Yeah. So a lot of brands are introducing resale in some capacity as I'm thinking about Urban Outfitters, Patagonia quite famously, mm -hmm. Levi's, Eileen Fisher. Is this, would you say that it is becoming an essential part of the fashion business model? I think it's going to. I think it's trending in that direction. I think more and more brands adopt it. They realize the benefits of it mm -hmm. into like the circularness of it and like bring back existing customers at a lower price. So Lululemon does a really great program um, where you essentially bring back items you used to 
own, they give you a discount price uh, or like a store credit and then you spend it again there. So it's only serves to benefit the brands. Mm -hmm. And I think too, as sustainability becomes more and more important to consumers, they'll have to adopt. Yeah, I was reading some re reports that say like resale is going to start to sort of surpass fast fashion in the next 20 years. Yeah, I, yeah, I've seen those stats as well. And it's actually growing faster than any other segment. So yeah, it is impressive. And it, re it reminds me a little bit of Mac. I remember Mac was one of the first brands to do this, where if you brought in six used items, right. they would give you a new one free. And it is it is building loyalty as well as having the circular mm -hmm. and sustainable aspect to it. So logistically speaking, there are some challenges to integrating resale into your model. What are some strategies brands can use to make it happen? I think partnerships is really the key. There is a, it's an American based um, website that does uh, resale called the fashion file, mm -hmm. very similar to the real real, but smaller. They just do designer handbags and uh, designer goods. And they partnered with Neiman Marcus and in each Neiman Marcus, you can actually go in with your Chanel handbag, drop it off at a counter, get a text in 20 minutes that you are, they're gonna pay you a thousand dollars for it. Or if you want a Neiman Marcus credit, they'll give you 10% more. And then you're in Neiman Marcus with a pocket you right. know, burning to yeah. want to spend that money. <laughs> um, so that partnership is obviously beneficial to Neiman Marcus mm -hmm. way more than it, not more than it is for Fashion File. But Fashion File was like a grassroots like, website for a really long time. And last year they introduced that partnership. And I think, again, that's the key and that's how it's going to be the most beneficial for everyone. Yeah. And I think, I mean, ThreadUp, I know is partnering with Gap. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to start to see more and more brands partnering because it does take some of the friction out. Yeah. Are there other ways that like, say, let's think of a brand that's, you know, something like that fashion handbag where, you know, you may, would you want to resell goods in your own store or in a separate store or mm -hmm. you're seeing anything like that happening? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, apps like, uh, like Poshmark and like Depop are making it way less frictionless. Mm -hmm. And especially I think with COVID, those people just had more time to spend at home in their closets going through things and more time to spend on the apps looking through for different things they want. So I think that creates a much less frictionless experience for both the buyer and the seller. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a driver as well. Right. What are, what other implications are there for the industry? If we think about, you know, resale, I mean, it's going to, if you wanted to really go all the way and commit to it, what is the sort of domino effect? Do mm -hmm. you think? Um, I think fast fashion will decrease in a massive, massive way. Mm -hmm. I think people will just hang on to their, will be more inclined to hang on to their, their purchases because they'll spend more money on it. You like, they'll understand that I'm not going to buy a $20 t-shirt. I'll maybe buy a more expensive brand like a Patagonia, a nice well-made t-shirt that's been recycled, reused, whatever the fabrics hang on to it they'll probably get repairs to it they'll like care for their clothes more so i think by that factor fast fashion will just sort of decrease you won't actually need to go out and buy another ten dollar t-shirt to replace this one you spend money on and you've invested in it's like a, it's a, you care for it it's more of a i see it as a sort of like 
caring for your clothes is almost like a hobby. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something that people would start to do more and more if they invested into it. Mm-hmm. Repairs is a, you mentioned that I, that's an interesting thing to me as well, because we know that things like visible mending yeah. um, have become more, they're starting to become more popular mm-hmm. and people taking old garments and having them remade yeah. by, you know, a designer yeah, absolutely. And I can see those types of things. If you had a flagship location, if you offered that service in the store, could be a really compelling way to get people into the store as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Definitely. So on the one hand, there may be people who are, you know, happy to trade in their older clothes and shoes and bags for cash or credit. There are some who want to make their clothes last. And so, I mean, that's that's repair or other services. What other opportunities are there for brands in in that vein I think like you mentioned definitely the the sort of remaking of previously loved items I know you do that like the jewelry market is like notorious for that and they do a really great job where you bring in like your grandmother's ring and they make it into something that is a little more modern and Mm -hmm. that's something that you would want to wear yourself so I think if fashion brands would capitalize on that that could be really huge yeah and and what I I think as technology becomes more advanced better material reuse will become possible as well. And right now it's quite laborious to recycle fabrics Mm -hmm. and and especially at a lower cost, it's it's really fairly costly to do it right now. But I think once we figure that out on the technological side, Mm -hmm. then it'll be easier to make things out of recycled fabrics and to make new fabrics out of existing materials as opposed to just new crops of cotton etc yeah yeah exactly and I think smaller designers are really like doing it best mm-hmm. um the designer that you interviewed Diana Coatsworth does a really great job I have a couple of friends they have their their own line called Average Babies mm-hmm. they're graduates of Ryerson um and they had made most of their collection recently out of used fabrics they like went to latex stores and got like their scraps and assembled them they asked people for unused denim and patchwork sort of stuff. So I think more and more local and independent designers are able to do that and understand the importance of those practices and also the uniqueness that those practices bring Mm -hmm. that fashion lovers really, I think, are interested in. Yeah, yeah. And and I think the sort of the idea of exclusivity as well. So Mm -hmm. producing a smaller line of something used to be very you know taboo you didn't want to do it because you wanted to put as much of the product out there as possible so everybody could have that red jumpsuit but now it's like oh we're only making a very small number of these and they're gone like you know in in a few days sometimes yeah and I think exclusivity really is a big driver for the market as well mm-hmm. like being like even as, as someone who shops vintage you're the only one who has that vintage handbag yeah and it's my favorite joke with my friends who will say I love your shirt or bag or whatever where is it and I'm like it's vintage yeah you can't, you can't get it <laughs> yeah, yeah and that's part I think that also is part of a driver of resale as well is that when yeah. you that if you do love vintage shopping then you love scouring and looking yeah. for that one little thing that's super special that's really you Mm -hmm. and no one else is going to have it that discovery the sense of discovery and definitely on a lot of the the new apps that people are using it's easier to because it's curated once you've bought a few things or searched for stuff they know what you're looking for so it's not like you're in a giant um you don't have to it's not like shopping through the goodwill yeah 
yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an elevated version of that. And I think too, there's sort of been this in the last 10 years, this cultural shift that people are okay with used items and there's no stigma associated with like, oh, you're, you don't have money because you're buying it used. Mm-hmm. I think that's been lifted a lot. Yeah. Especially again, when you're buying, you're buying used, but it's a, you know, Birkin bag or something. Used, used Chanel is a little different <laughs> yeah. than you know, a flannel t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. But I do think thrift shopping in general has like the stigma is way, way less than it was when I was growing up. I think Gen Z is like very much into that like independent style and like only I have it mm-hmm. sort of aesthetic and making their own paving their own way that way. Um, it's not like when, you know, when I was growing up in like the early 2000s, it was like everyone was wearing Abercrombie and Fitch. Right, I mean, I'm Gen X, so it was, thrifting was cool when I was a kid. Gotcha. So, so I think it's like back. our kids are now yes. getting back into it. Yeah, gotcha, <laughs> so. gotcha, it's that cycle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Great, well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, no problem at all. Whether it's resale, upcycling, made to order, or other sustainable practices, slow fashion is poised to continue to grow. In fact, resale alone is expected to exceed fast fashion sales in less than 10 years. So will fast fashion go the way of the video rental store? And how can brands shift their models so they can adapt to this change in a way that feels credible? You can visit us at sld.com for more information and I'll link in the transcript to an article to get you started. Thanks for listening. For more information about Think Retail, you can reach us at info at sld.com. For more episodes, visit us online at sld.com slash podcast. Next time, we discuss the rising trend of destination retail. We hope you'll join us.